Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NBA and what's going down in the association. After that, we will touch on the NFL with some offseason news and things of that nature. Then we will talk about some NCAA football news, some big developments there, and then we will have our best for last. Now, remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, along with following the show's Twitter page at JTime Sports, which is not only dedicated to just the show, but it is mainly a breaking news page. It is, I'm all over that thing all the time. Whenever something breaks, you guys know right after I know through the Twitter page. I repeat, that is at JTime Sports, all caps, and it will pull up the logo as you see on the podcast, things of that nature. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, and welcome into the show. We have a very recent show, I should say. Obviously, you guys know we do this thing weekly for the most part, you know, maybe a Thursday, maybe a Friday, but you know, we do this thing weekly for the most part. And, you know, stories may break on a Tuesday that I cover on a Friday. Stories may break on a Wednesday that I cover on a Friday. Based on what I'm looking now, things are pretty much broken the last 24 hours. So this is a pretty great show for me. And we're going to start off in the association, in the NBA in which the case, as always, we're going to look at the standings. We've got in the East, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Boston, New York, Miami, Charlotte, Toronto, Chicago, Indiana. And of course, as I've always said, you go all the way to 10 because of the play-in tournament. 7 through 10 will play in a round-robin style play-in tournament to get in the playoffs. As long as they're within three games of each other, which... I don't see a scenario where anybody separates in either conference from that marker. And then the West, we have Utah, Phoenix, Lakers, Clippers, Portland, Denver, San Antonio, Dallas, Golden State, Memphis. Now, just looking at a couple of the numbers, you've got Brooklyn absolutely on fire. They are only on a two-game win streak, but they won nine of their last ten. And I believe the entire streak... If not the entire streak, maybe one game was done without Kevin Durant. So this is massively impressive. This, I believe, encompasses the fact that they went on the West Coast and took down pretty much everybody that was to take down out West. And they're absolutely rolling with James Harden, putting up monumental numbers, putting up MVP level numbers alongside of Kyrie Irving and the rest of that team. I mean, they've got guys that we've never heard of. Scoring a lot of points. Like Bruce Brown has gone from a defensive stopper, from his purpose being a defensive player, to being a very, and I do mean very good, offensive player at the moment, thanks to James Harden. And they've got, you know, backup centers dunking all over the place, thanks to Harden's passing. So the Nets are looking very good right now. Boston seems to have corrected some of its issues, winning four straight, heading into the break which is huge for their confidence. Obviously, they've got two All-Stars this year in Tatum and Brown. And so guys like Kimball Walker starting to get a little bit more healthy. You see the bigs starting to work a little bit better in Boston. They're starting to move the ball again. Brad Stevens seems to have gotten the team back 
on track of going right into All-Star, like I said, which is huge. Winning four in a row and getting up to the fourth seed, which is where a lot of people predicted they would be, right around that fourth seed. So that is huge for them. The New York Knicks are the five seed. The New York Knicks are going to All-Star break with a positive record for the first time since Carmelo Anthony was a Nick, which was the last time they also made the playoffs. They were a two seed in the East that season. I've, obviously, I don't think there'll be a two seed this year, considering with what Philly's doing, what Brooklyn's doing, what even Milwaukee and Boston is starting to do. I don't think there'll be a two seed this year, but they will probably play Boston, in my opinion, in the first round. And I don't think Boston wants any part of that New York Knicks team. They're tough. They play defense, obviously, because of Tom Thibodeau. You've got guys like Julius Randle, who's going to cause matchup problems with no true big in Boston. You've got Mitchell Robinson, who's going to cause a lot of problems. And so they are playing a lot of good basketball up there with the Knicks. And so I am proud of them for getting that ship, starting to get that ship turned around. This is the kind of team where a superstar may want to go. You know, you hear all the time, well, people want to go to the Knicks. And it's like, why? Why would I go to the Knicks? If this team existed two years ago, maybe KD and Kyrie decide to go to the Knicks instead of the Nets. And then who knows what could happen from there. Maybe the Knicks are officially back. And the Knicks are the talk of the NBA, which would just make certain guys in the media, specifically guys like Stephen A. Smith and other prominent Knicks fans, go through the moon because the Knicks are good again for the first time in a very long time. Hell, they're happy now. When you look at Philly, what they've got going on, still the number one seed going into the break with MVP frontrunner Joel Embiid. Uh, he's right now the MVP of the season ended today. Embiid will be getting the MVP. He's absolutely on fire. He has five 40.10 rebound games. The rest of the league has four. So he is by far the most dominant center in the game right now. He is absolutely balling right now. And so having him as the MVP front runner was not a hard decision, especially when they are the number one seed in the conference as we go into all-star breaks. Now, taking a peek at the Western Conference, the Utah Jazz are still holding strong with their two All-Stars and Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Phoenix, on a four-game win streak, has catapulted themselves into the number two seed, and I think they also have an MVP candidate in Chris Paul. Now, again, the numbers aren't amazing. He's averaging 18 and 6 or something like that, 18 and 7. But... He was on Oklahoma City last year. They were a four seed. They moved him because the goal, remember the story before the season started, was, oh, Oklahoma City's tanking. Or how long until they move Chris Paul because they're trying to tank. So they'll take Chris Paul and then just turn around and flip him to some young team for a couple of assets, a couple of picks. They'll just flip Chris Paul out real fast to a contender. Maybe, you know, at that time we were thinking Lakers could use a point guard. Clippers could use a point guard. You know, several other teams could use point guards. Milwaukee at the time needed a guard. How many would they give up a couple first-round picks for Chris Paul? Well, they end up keeping Chris Paul, and he catapults them to the fourth seed and is a Lou Dort three away from getting to the second round of the playoffs. So they move him to Phoenix because Oklahoma City wants to tank, and they're successfully doing so. And now Phoenix has been catapulted all the way up to the second seed with the same roster who went undefeated in the bubble. I think they went 8-0 in the bubble and still didn't even make the play-in tournament. They were that bad last season. They've been catapulted all the way up to the second seed in the playoffs, spearheaded by Chris Paul. 
So Chris Paul has to be in the MVP conversation if the words are truly most valuable. He has to be one of the top three or four most valuable players in the NBA. The Nuggets are also entering the All-Star break on a four-game win streak. They are figuring it out, you know. Murray exploded a couple of weeks ago, and ever since then, he's been pretty consistent. Michael Porter Jr. had a good game last night. Jokic is being Jokic. He's a top three or four MVP candidate himself. And if they can climb up, currently they're sitting at sixth. If they can climb up to fifth, maybe even fourth, Jokic could have a very, very good MVP case. Because right now, Dame, who's sitting one spot above Jokic, has been playing without CJ and without Nurkic. And he has the Portland Trailblazers at fifth. And he's going absolutely crazy himself, including hitting a couple, including hitting a couple of huge threes and a game winner over Golden State a couple of nights ago on national television, which is always huge. You want to have those big moments on national TV. It may swing the opinions of voters who don't watch every single game because it's basketball. There's so many of them. It's hard to keep an eye on everything. Both L.A. teams are entering the break on losing streaks. Lakers on a two gamer, Clippers on a three gamer. You can chalk those up to injuries. I don't see that as a referendum on, oh my God, the LA teams are vulnerable. I believe the Lakers are still gonna win the NBA championship. I believe the Clippers will still play them in the Western Conference Finals. If not, you know, play them in the second round and lose to them earlier, but I believe that the Clippers and the Lakers will be fine. And there's no referendum on them. Dallas enters on a three game winning streak. Luka is starting to figure it out. He's starting to get that MVP prediction that a lot of us, myself included, predicted that he would be involved in. He's starting to figure it out. So that is huge for the Dallas Mavericks. But what are we going into now? All-Star Day? But definitely the All-Star break. And last night, the All-Star teams were picked by Captain LeBron James of the West and Captain Kevin Durant of the East. Now, Durant will not play in the game due to he is out with injury uh and we know that um andy davis sorry is not in the game as well also due to injury so they picked uh there were a couple of jokes there like uh when durant picked vucevic he made the joke that charles barkley can't pronounce his name not charles barkley um oh man not charles barkley kenji perkins can't pronounce Vucevic's name, but he, he can, so he put Vucevic. Uh, you had the, you had a couple of uh, man, good picks in there. Like when I got Durant picked Zion, LeBron made a comment of good pick. Um, and then it was another pick. I can't remember. LeBron made it, and Durant was like, "Oh man, I want it." Such and such, you know. So it was only happened. I figured that'd be a trade. Remember a couple years ago, LeBron traded for Ben Simmons. Um, so I was wondering if. They would do that again, but there was no trades. But ultimately, the team ended up like this. So on Team LeBron, it is in the starting lineup, LeBron, Giannis, Steph, Luka, Jokic, to which Giannis made the funny joke of when he heard that for the first time from the media. He almost choked on his chicken and said, oh, it's over, guys. Yeah, it's over. That's starting lineup. Yeah, it's a nice starting lineup. It's over. Um, and then on Team LeBron's bench is Damian Lillard, who should have been a starter. Ben Simmons, Chris Paul, Jalen Brown, Paul George, Sabonis, and Gobert. And on Team Durant, it is Kyrie, MB, Kawhi, Bill, and Tatum in the starting lineup. Off the bench, it is Harden, Booker, Zion, Zach Levine, Julius Randle, Vucevic, 
Donovan Mitchell. So that was pretty much how they came off the board. Not exactly in that order. Obviously, I should have gone, you know, LeBron, Kyrie, Giannis, and B, etc. But they came off the board for their respective teams in that order. There's something similar with the last pick on both teams. Well, you paid attention. They're Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Both of them play on the Western Conference leading Utah Jazz. And they were left on the board. LeBron, in one of the funniest moments of the draft, he came down to about four people, three people. And he goes, man, I need some size. I just realized my bench doesn't have any size. Switch looking at his bench. Damian Lillard, 6'3". Ben Simmons is 6'10". Chris Paul is 6'0". Jalen Brown is 6'6". Paul George is 6'7", 6'8". And then so it comes down to, at the time, it was Sabonis, Gobert, and Mitchell because Durant had just took Vucevic. He goes, and LeBron goes, man, I need some size. I realize my bench doesn't have any size. Which the tallest person he has is the 6'10 point guard, Ben Simmons. The entire basketball world thought he was drafting Rudy Gobert, and he drafted DeMontis Sabonis, who's not small. Sabonis is about 6'10 himself, and he uses a power forward in the NBA. And it left the Utah Jazz guys on the bench. Mitchell went to the team Durant at pick 23. Pick 24 was Rudy Gobert. Well, he was pick 24, but he was basically left to LeBron. Nobody wanted Gobert. It shows, and Chuck called him out on it. I mean, stop disrespecting the Jazz. It's not disrespecting the Jazz. It is nobody respects Rudy Gobert. Because if I look at the list, Donovan Mitchell, yeah, he's probably the worst player in this game. Just looking at me, no disrespect to Mitchell. I was saying him and Levine, you can make the argument. Him and Booker, I guess, but I'd probably take Booker. He's probably the worst player in this game in terms of value on the court. Um, and then Rudy Gobert is absolutely the worst player in this game. He's tall, Andre Roberson. So when you look at it that way, there's no real reason to have Rudy Gobert on the court more than five to ten minutes. He dunks and he blocks shots. Valuable in the NBA, not so valuable in the All-Star game. So yeah, that was pretty funny, actually, uh, that Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, both Utah Jazz members, were left last picks. To me, it showed that they don't fear either. That in the playoff series, they look across the court and they see... Donovan Mitchell is your best scorer and Rudy Gobert is your second best player. Yeah, you're not going to beat us. And so I found that very interesting that that happened. I'm sure it wasn't planned. Uh, like LeBron said, he pretty much has his first pick in mind because he's usually also get it. He has his first pick in mind. He said maybe his second. And then after that, it's more of a reactionary thing, which you can tell. They pick their first couple of picks fast. And then when you get that third pick, you start trying to put teams together and stuff like that. So it's kind of funny and probably subconsciously what they think that the Utah Jazz are no threat and that they made them the last two picks. Um, LeBron admitted that, or admitted joking, try to hide with a joke that the Clippers are the rival. He said, I'm going to pick my rival. I was only time I have a roof for him. Uh, and he said, no, I'm just kidding. And he picked when he picked Paul George. So that was interesting as well. You got a kind of a subliminal in there. Um, it was good to see LeBron and Durant's personalities. Of course, we get LeBron's all the time, um, but it was good to see 
Kevin Durant's kind of in a laid back moment. He wasn't really serious. I mean, he wasn't even playing the game. So, you know, he, there was no seriousness to the event at all. So that was pretty cool. But other things that came out for the NBA All-Star in one night was three-point shootout competitors was Devin Booker, Jalen Brown, Steph Curry, Zach Levine, Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum. So instead of them shooting Saturday night and then playing the game Sunday, they're going to shoot I would say they're going to shoot second. They probably do the skills challenge first, do the shootout second. Um, that way they warm up a little bit uh, and then they play the game. So that'll be interesting with Booker, Steph, Levine, Mitch, and Tatum in the big point shootout. Uh, the, the favorite, in my opinion, is probably going to be Steph. I would pick Devin Booker. Uh, so I, don't, I don't remember Steph winning one of these. If he did, I don't remember it. Uh, my apologies there if he did win one, but I know Clay used to beat him a lot when they used to do these. And Booker is like the closest thing to a Clay type player in this scenario. So I'm going to go with Booker to win the three point shootout. For the skills challenge, you have Robert Covington, Luka Doncic, Chris Paul, Julius Randle, DeMontis Sabonis, Vucevic. So Robert Covington would be the first player not in the 24 All Stars to beat on site so you know they're only flying in the players and stuff like that so robert covington would be the first player not in participating in the all-star game to be on site for the skills challenge in that i would pick chris paul i just have an odd feeling chris paul's gonna do that now the bigs win a lot so it's interesting that the fact that the bigs win the competition but i would take chris paul in the skills challenge and then the duck contest, which would be held at halftime of the All-Star game, will be all non-All-Stars. Who, the guys who would probably fill up the um, Rising Stars game, or will this year, will next year, Obi Toppin of the New York Knicks, rookie Cassius Stanley of the Indiana Pacers, and Anthony Simons of the Portland Trailblazers. In this competition, I am taking Cassius Stanley. He has bunnies out of this world. Now, now bounce between Cassius and Obi Toppin, but I think Obi Toppin's more of a power in-game dunker. And so in this scenario, and being a flash competition, I would probably go Cassius Stanley. Uh, I don't know how they're gonna do it, because halftime in an All-Star game is usually a concert, but obviously due to the fact of COVID, they're supplementing the concert with a dunk contest. So maybe, you know, they do three dunks, highest score. If there's some kind of dunk off, then we go from there. But I would say give them three dunks, highest score wins. And then uh, you bring the players back on the court for the All-Star game, especially considering that nobody in the All-Star game is actually in the dunk contest. Well, especially after that, like Zion um, turned it down and stuff like that. Which turned out he had a toe injury. So Zion may have made the best decision for him. But up next, we are going to shift to the NFL and talk about what's going down with the Shield. All right, guys, and welcome back into the show. And now we're going to shift to the NFL. And speaking of that, we have a little breaking news, conveniently, on the topic. Uh, the Washington football team has officially informed Alex Smith of his release. 
Um, again, we tweeted that at Daytime Sports. So turn your post notifications on, give it a follow, and you would know that pretty early, actually, before Bleach Report, Sports and all that stuff tweeted out. More importantly, yeah, well, uh, Alex Smith has officially been released from the Washington football team. Uh, but the belief is the 36-year-old still wants to play. Uh, he didn't really look very mobile last season, but hey, maybe some team will give him a shot as a backup. I don't know if he'll accept that. I don't know if he'll just say it's you know prefer to go home because you never know. Maybe he's one of those guys that you know. I'm 36. I've already been through a couple of traumatic experiences with football. I've made a lot of money. Maybe if some team tells me, hey, we want you to come in and back up our young quarterback, he decides that you know I'll just go home, go home, hang out with my kids, coach them, stuff like that. So. That is a situation definitely to watch for with a guy like Alex Smith floating around the market in this quarterback carousel that is still spinning. And one of the things that got spinning really good yesterday was the Jets and quarterback Sam Darnold. The GM, for the first time, said that, hey, we are taking calls. We will accept calls on Sam Darnold. So... That was all but guaranteeing. Remember, there was a strong rumor, or rather, I don't remember, but I'm letting you know that was a strong rumor that the Jets were heavily involved in the Zach Wilson, quarterback from BYU evaluation, that they were really a big fans of Zach Wilson, that they liked his game, and things of that nature. So by them opening up and saying, hey, we're taking calls on Sam Donald, that all but confirms the fact that they are indeed going to go with Zach Wilson at number two, which means that they can maybe get another first round pick for Sam Donald. But what that also means is the number one pick is no longer valuable because everybody knows Trevor Lawrence. The number two pick is no longer valuable because the strong belief now is it's going to be Zach Wilson. Now, if it's not Zach Wilson, right, it could just be a smoke and mirrors. Maybe the GM is saying, we're going to take calls of Sam Donald. Hint, hint. Also, here's this leaked story that we're in love with Zach Wilson. Hint, hint. So whoever gives the best deal for either asset, you may be able to get Sam Donald or you may be able to get Zach Wilson. Or, you know, come up to get a quarterback extra choice at two. But let's presume that they're not playing any games and that they are indeed trying to move off Sam Donald without, you know, being blunt about Sam Donald. Well, then that means the number one pick is a quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. The number two pick is a quarterback, Zach Wilson. The number three pick is Miami Dolphins. They don't presumably need a quarterback if they're going to roll with Tua Tagovailoa. They need a quarterback. They pick best player available. That's either Kyle Pitts, Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, you know, one of those guys, one of those offensive weapons to help Tua out. Then it gets interesting because the number four pick sits the Atlanta Falcons. And I believe Atlanta could be the mover in this draft. What I mean by that is they sit at four. They cannot financially move off of Matt Ryan for at least a year. Maybe and probably two. Julio Jones is pretty much the same. He's, he's, a, he's an Atlanta Falcon. They've got a pretty good offense. They played well last year. And like, I mean, Atlanta, if you if you watch Atlanta and think Matt Ryan's the problem, you need a new TV or to stop watching football. Atlanta's problem is not Matt Ryan. Atlanta's problem is the defense. And they would sit at the number four pick. They need youth, assets, and defense. And a number four pick in the NFL draft can net you all three of those things in one fell swoop. 
And if you look at teams below them, you got Cincinnati. They don't need a quarterback. They're not going to move. They're going to drive Panay Soul. They're going to, Panay Soul is going to fall in the lap of the Cincinnati Bengals at five. Philadelphia Eagles, they maybe need a quarterback if they're not sold on Jalen Hurts. If they are sold on Jalen Hurts, they probably won't move and just draft the best receiver available in the draft. Detroit doesn't need a quarterback. They got Jared Goff. Carolina could use a quarterback. They may be willing to flip with Atlanta to come up and get a Justin Fields, or come up and get a Trey Lance, or they may be happy with either one and willing to sit at eight and wait on their quarterback to come up to them. So if you look at just the top eight, nobody really needs a quarterback after pick two. And so, well, Carolina could use one, obviously. San Francisco could use one as well with Jimmy Garoppolo. But for the main thing, Nobody really needs a quarterback. But above Atlanta, especially really above Cincinnati, because Philadelphia, like I said, could use one, may draft one, may not. There is so many different scenarios of what could happen. But just focusing on the Atlanta pick, what if New England called Atlanta? Now, admittedly, I'm a Patriots fan, so I could be a little biased here. But Atlanta sits at four. New England now has a lot of picks. New England sits at pick 15. Atlanta could use Stephon Gilmore, swap in first round picks, throw in a second round pick. You need a defensive player. Stephon Gilmore is still a top corner in the league, and the Patriots have pretty much openly been wanting to move on from him. The Patriots also are in need of a quarterback. So they trade Stephon Gilmore. Like I said, trade Stephon Gilmore. The number 15 pick, the number 47 pick, I believe the Patriots have, and the 65th pick or something like that, something of that nature, in the 60s, where they also trade, and Atlanta comes down from 4 to 15, pick up Stephon Gilmore. At 15, they can still get an offensive lineman, they can still get an edge rusher, still get a very good player, and the Patriots go up and draft Trey Lance or Justin Fields or Kyle Pitts. I think Atlanta could be the mover here uh, because they don't need a quarterback and they're going to be up there. And people are going to start to panic, especially if the Jets decide to actually trade Donald and go in for all in for Zach Wilson. People are going to start to panic and someone's going to make a move up for a quarterback. I think the fourth overall pick is the pick to watch for that situation. Now, Deshaun Watson and the story that never seems to end. Well, one of the stories that never seems to end between him and Dak. Deshaun Watson is still obviously a Houston Texan. And recently, Jalen Ramsey, who shares an agent with Deshaun Watson, said that he doesn't believe that Watson ever plays for Houston again. Now, that has been the overwhelming thought around the league is that Watson is never playing for Houston again. And they're only really playing hardball until the draft. Free agency, they can sit out of it. Obviously, they're willing to risk free agency because you don't, you can't sign free agents to a team that quarterback probably going to leave. So they're willing to punt on free agency. Nick Cesario, who is a Patriot disciple, probably was going to punt on free agency anyway. But Belichick's not really in the free agency, to make, especially to make big splashes. So they're willing to punt on free agency. And the draft is in late April, which would be the deadline for this move. Because if you trade him before the draft you can't get 2024 picks however if you trade him on draft night the 2024 picks now become eligible to be traded and so deshaun watson may get moved on draft night for a, a cash of picks similar to what we see when teams make the move for the number two pick and you know, they flop in the draft come grab a guy 
moves get made, deals get done, then Watson may be traded on draft night. If Deshaun Watson is not traded by the time the Thursday night portion of the draft, which is the first round, is over, he probably would not be traded. And so then it becomes an official hardball and massive things will happen. It'll get messy fast. Watson has a lot of money and a lot of cachet around the league. And so he does not have to show up for them at all. And nobody in the league will disparage him one bit. Now, speaking of a quarterback that's in an interesting concept, it is Dak Prescott. Now, he's made it through the franchise tag. Well, now nah, he didn't really make it through. He broke his ankle. But he's played on one franchise tag already. Reportedly, it's looking like they're going to go with James Slater. Now, James Slater's reported they've made a little contract progress that they're still talking but there's no significant progress based on those reports i'm gonna say he plays on the tag again next year so he made 31 million dollars last year made 37 million dollars this year but then guess what they're not gonna pay him 55 he's gonna hit the open market which means the last person to do this is the quarterback position was kirk cousins the person who's gonna make the most money in the nfl from 2016 to 2022 is Kirk Cousins at about $196 million, something of that nature, because he got tagged twice. That's about $70 million. Then he got $84 million guaranteed. That's what, $150? And then he added on some years to that. So Kirk Cousins made about a fully guaranteed money, about $200 million in about six years, which is, if you say $200 million over six years, you probably think an NBA or baseball he did that in the NFL, fully guaranteed, thanks to two guaranteed franchise tags, one three-year, $84 million guaranteed deal, and then adding on a couple more fully guaranteed deals with the Minnesota Vikings. He played the franchise tag game and won. Dak Prescott is about 12 months from playing and winning as well. If I'm Dak Prescott, I do not sign a long-term contract. I make my demands ridiculous. I say, no, I'm, I'm, I want this contract or else. And I get tagged. I go play. I put up decent numbers, pretty good numbers. I mean, Kirk Cousins never put up mind-blowing numbers. Put up pretty good numbers: 4,000 yards, 28, 29 touchdowns, keep it on 10 picks, and make it out the season healthy. And I hit the open market as a 27-ish year old quarterback in his prime, with only one real injury in my football life. I can pretty much name my price, and it's not a situation where man you know such and such these bad teams need quarterbacks new england's probably gonna need a quarterback atlanta could be looking to move on the giants could be looking to move on you have tampa bay who knows how long brady's gonna run it new orleans could be looking um san francisco could be looking they run garoppolo back and he gets hurt again they say screw it, we're over it san francisco could be looking so he could have his pick of pretty good teams ready to just pay him a four-year, $150 million deal, ready to roll, plug and play, and go try and win a Super Bowl with Dak Prescott on several, like I said, good franchises. So that is definitely something to watch for Dak to do. That's what I would do if I was Dak agent. I would tell him to take the franchise tag, play one more year. You know it's $37 million. They have to pay it in 12 months. And so you'll make $68 million in 24 months. And then you can parlay that to get to a good franchise. If you think Dallas isn't the place for you, you can parlay that and go get a Super Bowl ring and get your money all at the same time. Chicago is in a fiasco at quarterback. They 
at the moment only have one quarterback on the roster, that is Nick Foles. And with the GM and Ryan Pace and the head coach and Matt Nagy who need to win this year, that ain't going to work. Nick Foles is not going to be the answer. Obviously, you brought him in there to go against Mitch Trubisky. Both of them failed, honestly, because they kept being swapped out for each other. Ultimately, you allowed Mitch Trubisky to go in for agency by not picking up his option. And so by doing that, you were left with just Nick Foles. Now, you sat on your hands and you didn't go get Matt Stafford. And then you turn around and didn't go get Carson Wentz. And you, from what I've been told, what's been reported out there, that you're really not in the Carson. No, you're not Carson Wentz. You're really not in the Deshaun Watson race either. And you haven't made a move on Sam Darnold. And you didn't go after Cam Newton last season. And, and, and. Now, there's some harsh critics in the media that said you hadn't had a good quarterback since Sid Luckman, which was played in the 50s and 60s. I would tend to say Ress Grossman wasn't bad. Uh, Ress Grossman got you into a Super Bowl. So, you know, Ress Grossman was pretty solid. But before and after that, I mean, you had Jim McMahon there for a little while. The history of Chicago Bears has not been great quarterbacks. They've had amazing running backs. Gail Sayers, Walter Payton. Uh, they've had amazing defenses. I don't even have time to list all of the amazing players they've had come through Chicago. Middle linebackers, edge rushers, safeties, etc. They've had great receivers. Brandon Marshall. They've had great tight ends. They've had great everything. But quarterback, for the most part of their franchise's history, and it seems that if they do not either hit on the draft, take a big swing, get a Deshaun Watson, pull a Sam Donald trade, something, that they're going to go into the season with Nick Foles at quarterback, all but dooming the pace naggy regime in Chicago. Now, the Big Ben situation has been resolved in Pittsburgh. He agreed to basically only play for $14 million this year. And... He is going to come back and give it one last go with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think that is a terrible move. I would not have done that. As the Steelers, I would have told Ben, hey, thank you for your service. We welcome you to any role you want besides the one on the field. Um, Unless you want a headset on. Then by all means, you can go have a headset on, be a quarterback coach, offensive assistant, whatever. But you will not put a helmet on with a Steeler logo on the side of it next season. But I thank you for your service. I thank you for everything. Your number will never be worn here again. And you will be one of the first members or one, the newest member in the Steeler Ring of Honor. Um, but I can't have you back here next season. I would have made a trade for Sam Donald. I would have made a trade. If I would have fought and shooting if I get Carson Wentz. I would have made a trade for a big time quarterback if I was the Steelers because you're in a division now with Baker under Kevin Stefanski and that offense while Baker's not being paid anything. You've got Lamar Jackson who has a unanimous MVP and you've got Joe Burrow who is the front runner for rookie of the year until he ultimately hurt himself. And even though it's Cincinnati, Joe Burrow is a magnet at the moment. And so they are going to be good as well. Plus you win your division. So you're going to have the first place schedule. I would have made a move off of Big Ben, but that's just me. Pittsburgh tends to do a little bit of the opposite of what conventional wisdom would say. They tend to be very loyal to their players, letting them play maybe a year or two too long instead of moving off them a year or two too early. Uh, a la Jerome Bettis. Uh, he was an absolute shell of his former self by the time Super Bowl 40 rolled around, but he ended up, you know, the, the bus's last stop is in Detroit. Heinz Ward, Troy Palomalu. And they, they, they let their guys stick around a little bit 
too long most of the time. Uh, they don't really do it to receivers. They drive receivers really well, so uh, they don't usually pay receivers. So it'd be very interesting to see if Juju gets paid by Pittsburgh. But they tend to let their guys play just a little bit too long in Pittsburgh. Um, if you are a team with cap space, little cap news. If you're a team with cap space, this is a hell of a free agency for you or an expected hell of a free agency for you because it is reported that it will be a quote unquote bloodbath uh, throughout the league because the cap fell for the first time I think in a decade. The cap went down. And so these teams are going to have to come under the cap, which means very good players or good players starters will be released by their teams and into open free agency because they're most of the league is over the cap now if you're a situation like new england they have 60 something dollars of cap space um indianapolis reportedly has somewhere around 50 it's literally i've heard a little bit less than 50 a little bit more than 50 but let's say for sake of argument they have 50 million dollars and they have carson wentz included in that calculation and so they can make a big move. You've got a couple of other teams with a lot of cap space who can really transform their organizations in one offseason by hitting on a couple of free agents. So that is something definitely to watch. And free agency opens in a little over a week, almost two. And so that is something you definitely will be watching for teams with a lot of cap space picking up high quality starter level players because their team that they had them on could no longer afford them thanks to the falling cap. I'll also be interested to see how players structure their contract. Will we see a bunch of big money one year deals? Because the cap fell this year, we expect it to explode back next year because of all the new TV money that's supposed to come in into the CBA negotiations or not negotiations, but into the CBA players get their percentage. So the cap will explode in a year, maybe two. So I'll be very interested to see how players structure their contracts to see if they want to be in free agency, open market when the cap explodes. But up next, we are going to touch on some NCAA football news and what's going down there. Alrighty guys, and we are back. And like I said, now we're gonna talk about some NCAA football news. And the biggest news, or at least the most pertinent positive news, was that Alabama and a few other schools plan on having full houses when the season starts. So they are planning on a lot of stadiums where 10% capacity. Some people had zero fans. Uh, I think Alabama was one of the more aggressive ones, having 25% capacity. But they are planning to be at a full 100-some thousand for Bryant-Denny Stadium. Uh, a lot of schools in the SEC are planning for that as well, including LSU. They are planning to fill up Tiger Stadium and having that be full throat, full blast for next season. Um, that is huge. That is a vote of faith in the fact that we're getting this COVID situation handled. The numbers across the country are falling. Uh, you see in a couple of radical and aggressive moves. Uh, by the Texas governor to completely open up the state and get rid of the mask mandate. So walking around Texas, it's like it was in quote unquote in normal times. Uh, maybe there's still people with masks, you know, people who are still afraid of the virus and you should be cautious. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, don't be afraid of the virus. No, you should be cautious. You should do what's best for you and your family. 
But for the most part, you will see, especially in sporting events, things of that nature, a sense of normalcy. People being back in filled stadiums, back in filled restaurants, back in filled malls and things of that nature. So that is interesting to see watching Texas. But college sports and college football specifically are trying to follow that model. They figure with things happening, they'll be able to get to field capacity by the time September rolls around. And so that would be huge for college football to have the atmosphere back, which means if college football will do it, the NFL will invariably do something. If not do it all the way, they will do something that is very similar. Maybe they go to 75% in some places, but the NFL will be based on state mandates. So that would be something to watch there. Also in college football, normalcy is returning to spring. We've got schools tweeting out their spring practice. You know, obviously last year, COVID hit right around this time. And so spring football died. You know, summer football was basically dead. They started to figure out right before fall how they were going to do football at all. So it's great to see coaches, you know, wearing their masks, but the players on the field doing bags, doing the different workouts, doing the different activities in the spring football season commands. Getting your body in shape, something that is huge for college players, that spring camp, man, that spring workouts are vital for what the teams need to get their freshmen up to speed, early enrollees, to make sure that guys who are necessarily not going to play, but they're very critical in practice, are up to speed and up to shape, and get stars back into shape. This is the first time they've had a normal offseason in a couple of offseasons, so that is huge for college programs. Oh, Scandal, obviously, is college football. So Scandal came out. Um, Les Miles was, who's the former LSU football coach and current University of Kansas coach, was reportedly in 2013 reprimanded by the university for making a couple of female staffers uncomfortable. Uh, reportedly, uh, allegedly rather, he brought a couple or one or two. I mean, he brought some back to his condo when they were, by, when they were alone. Um, made them uncomfortable, even going as far as kissing one allegedly. Uh, and the school reprimanded him for these actions or reprimanded him for the allegations in terms of they said he cannot talk to female co eds anymore, he um, was not allowed to hire them as babysitters. That was something he was doing, like female staffers, college people on the football staff, he was hiring as babysitters. Um, stuff like that. Uh, he texted him allegedly off a burner phone. It was his actual phone number. It was a burner phone. I mean, this was an, an not good for the LSU. I mean, and it's all and it's come out through an investigation into other Title IX violations and other um, things similar to what Les Miles had going on um, that the university allegedly covered for players. You know, something would happen with a player with domestic violence or. Uh, some sort of other issue with a female and of course the female would go to the coach or go to the administration and it would be they put the rug over you know they'd cover it up they'd uh, squash it down quote-unquote handle it internally things of that nature where the proper things were not done to protect these women in these situations and to properly investigate these allegations so Les Miles denies any wrongdoing um but that is definitely something that already in the mix of LSU in a scandal embroiled in a situation like this. It is definitely not good for Les Miles, the University of Kansas, or LSU. And the college football playoff. 
So, remember that thing I said I was like, they're going to go to eight? Okay, they still haven't officially gone to eight. I haven't even heard any rumblings about it. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed. Uh, they're rumbling about moving chairman around and stuff like that. Eh, whatever. I do still think they should go to eight. Eight's the number. 16 is not the number. Jesus Christ, I do not want to see Alabama play Coastal Carolina in the first round. Please. I do not want to see Alabama play BYU. They're going to win by 40. Like, I, like six, 16 is too much. I believe that eight is the perfect number. Like I said, first round, home field host. Second round, uh, which would be the, where you get into the old school playoff? I, that would be called that point. But the 14 playoff, then you go to the bowl system. And then the uh, NFL stadium hosts the college championship game, as it's always been doing for the past whatevers. Uh, since they got out of the BCS, pretty much, an NFL team would host. Um, not necessarily particularly in a bowl game, but just it's the college football playoff championship sort of thing. Um, so that's what I propose for the gospel playoff. I think again, they should really go to eight teams, home field hosts the first round. So that means you know, four or five matters. You know, it's just, oh, we're in, we're fifth. Well, you really want to be fourth because now instead of LSU hosting Notre Dame, it's Notre Dame hosting LSU, and that's huge. Uh, that travel. Uh, that weather difference and stuff like that that'll be played in January, so that weather difference would be here or December, so that weather difference would be huge. Uh, just for like a you know a West Coast team and all of a sudden having to go to the East Coast to play instead of East Coast going to the West Coast or a Southern team, you know, in in Alabama, Florida, an LSU having to go now play Michigan, Ohio State, Notre Dame, you know, one of these cold weather teams where. We're not used to that kind of weather on the field. That could be a huge home field advantage. So I said the playoff needs to investigate this to add a little bit more intrigue into the situation. But up next, we're going to have our best for last, which would be a discussion about some proposed NFL rule changes. Alrighty guys, so welcome back and we're going to do best for last, which will be a discussion on some potential NFL rule changes. So obviously, as you guys know, the NFL has their spring meetings uh, or winter meetings and then spring meetings with the NFL owners. And in these meetings, they discuss rule changes. Um, you know, teams present, we are proposing this change to this rule. This is how we would affect that rule. And it goes to a vote. You need 24 votes out of 32 owners, so 75%, for a rule to become, you know, a rule. And the owners vote, obviously, because they own the teams and therefore they hire the commissioner and who makes rules and things of that nature. But there's usually always four to six very interesting proposals that a team may offer that the league ends up offering and they come out because you want public support may sway an owner if public support hinges on a rule so the four interesting ones this year so far at least was the first was the baltimore ravens proposed a change to overtime which was the most interesting of the proposals in this scenario they would do the traditional coin toss obviously you know the coin toss decides any new situation so it decides the start of the game in overtime and 
Then instead of, you know, in college, you pick offense or defense and the other team picks the side of the field. Or in the NFL, you pick kick or receive and then the other team picks what side of the field or they want to receive on or kick from or whatever. In this scenario, it would be a little different. So the team that won the coin toss chooses the yard line which the drive begins. So let's say it's Ravens. I want to use them. Ravens and Steelers go to overtime. Ravens win the coin toss. The Ravens can put the ball anywhere they want. They can put it on the one-yard line, 99 yards going in. They can put it on the one-yard line, one yard going in. They can put it on the 50, the 40. It doesn't matter. They can put the ball anywhere they want to. Then the Steelers get to choose who has the ball first. And then it is complete sudden death. So if the Ravens are trying to think, man, we need to convince, we need to try to force the Steelers' hand and put the ball on the 15-yard line, you got to go 85 yards for a touchdown, Pittsburgh can then decide, okay, we're going to play defense, let Baltimore have the ball, first score wins. Conversely, if you're Pittsburgh and you win the coin toss and you put the ball on the 20, 80 yards going in, well, Baltimore may just say, screw it, we got Lamar Jackson, we'll go try to score and win this game. And so I think that is a very interesting coaching decision because you have to think about not only your defense, your opponent's defense, your offense, your opponent's offense. Do you think that your defense keep your opponent's offense out of field goal range? Do you think you can get in the field goal range on their offense? What yard line do you want to place it on? Do you want to place it on the five to make sure you get the ball, presumably, but then you have to go 70 yards to get in the field goal range? Or do you want to put it on a 25, maybe get the ball? I mean, there's so many different scenarios and ways that could go. I find that incredibly interesting. I feel like overtime should be done as fast as possible um, and with as much intrigue as possible because it is a special scenario. It doesn't happen a whole hell of a lot in the NFL. We're not like we're playing, you know, three or four overtime games a week. But it would be something that would be very intriguing for the fans and for the coaching staff to have to think about, okay, where do we go? And, you know, for the first year of it, you're not really going to have advanced analytics to show, okay, if we keep it on this side of 30, they're going to give us the ball. But we put it on that side of 30, they're going to take it and stuff like that. So that would be a very interesting coaching decision and a, a rule change I am in favor of. The next rule change will be huge for defensive players, which means they probably won't get passed. And for the fans, for the casual fan, which means they will review roughing the passer. So a lot of times we see roughing the passer calls as fans and media members and we scream bloody murder. Oh my God, that wasn't roughing. And then afterwards, you know, the announcers go, well, that really wasn't a lot of contact. Not sure what the referee saw there. And then you get the league come out and say, oh, well, we looked into it and it really wasn't roughing and we downgraded this and downgraded that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the league has to do this in order to try and save face from their terrible roughing the passer call. Well, a rule was proposed. I'm not sure by who, but a rule was proposed that they could review roughing the passer. So when that roughing is called, instead of man we got i got word from people upstairs that he really didn't do anything illegal and yet we're getting punished for this flag i can throw the red challenge flag and i can go review roughing now there is two ways you can do that you can either make it a challengeable play where you can challenge the roughing the pass call and it gets reviewed or when a roughing is called similar to targeting it is automatically reviewed to see if it actually was that and so that is, I think they should do it that way, not force a coach to use a challenge on this, but to allow 
a play to get reviewed from upstairs similar to targeting and have everything done that way but I don't think it'll pass because it helped the defense and the NFL wants points on the board rule three which I think is advantageous to successful assistant coaches is moving the hiring cycle until after the Super Bowl so as right now when you fire a coach you can hire your next coach as soon as the season ends so uh, I mean teams were hiring coaches in the middle of the playoffs so that is a disadvantageous position to let's say a Brian Dable who really only interviewed for a couple of jobs because he was prepping for the playoffs with the Bills or Brian Leftwich or Todd Bowles who had a great playoff run that may spike the interest of an owner well now they didn't get nearly as much pub as they should have and now they are not getting the benefits of being able to be hired in this hiring cycle you look at so many of these other assistant coaches that miss their opportunities because they're coaching on playoff teams and then you can even worse they don't really get their interview time they only get interviewed early they go on a playoff run may gain more interest and things of that nature so i am a fan of that rule i don't think it punishes anyone really uh, because you're not doing a whole lot during the playoff time anyway. Because if you hire a coach on wildcard weekend, he's probably not doing a whole hell of a lot with his guys until early March anyway. And so that is something I think that should definitely be implemented as well. So I am in favor of all three rule changes so far. And the one I am not a huge favor of is 4th and 15. It's come back up. Doing a 4th and 15 style play instead of going kicking an onside kick so you would still have the option to do the onside kick but you also now have the would have the option to try a one play for 15 yards away um, if the play is completed you play football from there if it is not completed or it is not gained the ball is dead wherever it is and the other thing gets the ball so that is a very very offensive rule which is why it gains traction every year it's brought up i think the rule should not happen because the onside kick although it's not as exciting as it used to be we've seen a couple of them work this year with the uh grapefruit style watermelon style kick where they lay it on the side and kick it and it spins all the way we've seen a couple of them work this year uh young young way had a couple great ones against the saints a couple years ago we've seen uh, the dallas cowboys get got on a watermelon kick and so I would not pass this rule. The onside kick is supposed to be hard. That's why it's an onside kick. It's not supposed to be something where, oh, I have Patrick Mahomes. Well, I'm up 10. I'll decide I'll go start kicking it to you. Eight minutes left. I'm going to try and go on fourth and 15 and try and get it, you know, that way. So if I get it on fourth and 15, I can keep the ball out of your hands. Like, there's just too much offensive benefit to that. I would much rather them just leave the onside kick as is so i would not be okay with this rule change but i am okay with the ravens overtime proposal which is the pick the yard line that team picks the offensive defense i am okay with reviewing roughing the call roughing the passer calls and i am okay with moving the hiring cycle to after the super bowl because that gives guys like a, this year top bowls a byron left which brian dable was in the AFC championship game eric bianami was in the afc championship game uh, some hot name coaches did not have the ability to go interview properly because they were prepping for playoff games. But that is all we have for the day. 
I thank you guys for joining us, for making us a weekly part of your Friday or your Thursday for a special edition episode. But I thank you for making us a part of your week. And I hope you guys continue to spread the word, continue to tell people about the show and about the Twitter page at Daytime Sports. And continue to listen in and stream and subscribe and download. That's huge. I appreciate it. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.